Welcome to Full Focus. In this episode, I spoke to network television series producer Tim Isofano. Tim has produced countless TV episodes from Netflix's Jessica Jones to the counterterrorism drama 24 on Fox. Tim dives deeper into the role of a producer and what it takes to bring a screenplay to life and how he once got two F-16 jets and the Marine Corps to rescue Jack Bauer. You can catch his latest series, Outer Banks, on Netflix, where he served as co-executive producer. We're going in three, two, one, full focus. Hey, Tim, welcome to Full Focus. Thanks so much for being on with me. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. Um, you know, I looked you up and you've achieved quite a, a career over the years, um, mostly working as a producer on on major scripted um, television series. and. Definitely more you know, excited to hear more about all that. Um, before we go there, I'd like to do this with all my guests. Uh, just kind of like tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background. You know, where, where are you from originally and uh, where did you grow up? Uh, I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and uh, uh, I, I went to uh, undergraduate school there uh, at a place called John Carroll University. Uh, not exactly known uh, as a film school. Uh, in fact, it wasn't at all. I uh, um, then went to film school at Loyola in Los Angeles. And uh, um, I you know, went back to Cleveland for a little bit. I worked in a couple television stations back east because I thought, well, that's the way to really rise quicker in the industry. And uh, I found out that that was not the case. And I ended up moving back to Los Angeles and taking the lowest level job I could find. Uh, eventually, we worked my way into being a uh, vice president at Paramount Pictures Network Television and uh, decided I didn't want to do that, that I, I didn't really think of myself as a very good executive. And um, uh, I asked them, you know, I said, look, guys, let me let me produce a television show or something like that so I can get out of this. And they did. And um, I haven't looked back since then. So mm. that's so, pretty much... Uh, so real quick, so you, you spent formative years probably, I would say, then in, in Cleveland, Ohio, right? That's correct. And and so when did you kind of know that, you know, I want to get into the entertainment industry and that's business. Were you a big movie buff? Did you enjoy TV shows? Like what fascinated you with, with the industry early on? Well, I, I did like a lot of movies. I did watch, you know, my share of television. Um, I uh, uh, My parents couldn't afford to send me to university I wanted to, so I had to you know, earn my way through school and get a job and all that stuff. And uh, the the thing that kind of got me into it was one day I was playing around on the FM dial, and I learned that uh, John Carroll University, where I ended up going, had an FM station. And I thought, well, that's cool. You know, I, I can do that. Um, you know, as my extracurricular activity. So I went there, and I became part of the radio station staff. And you know, did all that stuff, played music and, you know, did shows on, on, uh, on that station, all that little 10 watt FM. Um, and, uh, um, I thought I was going to go into radio until my, you know, faculty advisor said to me, um, he says, can you see yourself being, in, you know, being on the radio when you're 50 years old, given the time and temperature? I started thinking, uh, no, I don't do that. He says, you got to get into film and television. And the way to do that is to go to school in Los Angeles. And one of the schools he recommended was Loyola. And during uh, the uh, winter break of my uh, senior year in college, I flew out to L.A. 
and I met the department chairman, and I said, oh, this is what I want to do. And so that's how I got into it. And uh, I, you know, I watched a lot of movies, but I never really thought of it as like, you know, this is a career choice until until my senior year of college. So it took me a while to get there. You know, by contrast, I have a 15-year-old daughter who says, I want to be a director. So <laughs> she's, she's way ahead of me. Right. <laughs> well, you know, age. she can learn from, from the best too, right? I mean, you can definitely inspire her to, to become that, right? Um, but you, you, you also, you didn't quite jump into like, that world, right? I mean, in in the in in the industry, like you said, you got to sometimes really start at the bottom and then just kind of work your way up, improve yourself, and and kind of earn your way. Um, you started in in local news. That's kind of would you say that was well, one of your I major? Was, uh, my first job, my first job was uh, directing the weekend news and whatever else we were doing at this TV station in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which was you know. Um, it was kind of funny. It was uh, um, uh, it was pretty old school and behind the times. We had we had better facilities at, at Loyola than we did at this TV station. And I remember when I got the job, I was like, "Wow, I'm on top of the world. I'm getting started here. I'm going to direct," you know. And then when I got there and I started working, I was like, "Oh, I'm just directing a bunch of shows, you know, in the studio, people talking to one another, and you know, in a newscast and." Uh, um, uh, and I left that station when I got to Cleveland, there was a station there. I was actually fortunate enough to work in my hometown and they were doing a lot of documentaries. And so my job was to direct the weekend news and to do documentaries. And I was like, okay, now this is really, you know, substantial, uh, substantial. And I could, um, you know, grow from there. So I did get an opportunity to do a lot of stuff there in Cleveland at two different television stations in the documentary world. But then you know, that industry changed and they stopped doing less and less of local television. And so the documentaries dried up and I said, well, you know, um, and I was starting to get a little, um, you know, cause my, my degree from Loyola was writing for film and television. And I, and I was thinking as I was doing these documentaries, well, well these are great, but this is not where I want to be. I want to be making film and, uh, television series because I, I always, you know, thought that's where it was at, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I, the films that I watched were, you know, had a lot of, uh, influence on me in terms of like, well, this is where I want to be. You know, I saw those movies and I went, this is what I want to be. And it was good television shows too. So, um, that, that can, you know, as, as the documentary industry at the television stations was starting to shrink and disappear, then I decided that, you know, I needed to move to Los Angeles and get into the industry. And I came out to L.A. I worked as a PA at some small production company. Um, and then from there, I got a job directing some really bad syndicated show. And I really didn't know what I was doing, but I was doing it. And uh, after that, that's when I got a job at Paramount working in the network TV division. And there is where I really learned a lot on how to, you know, especially single camera film production. So yeah, and Paramount and Pictures. We still call it single. Right. So Paramount Pictures, a uh, 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 network television. You you eventually ended up like as at, at a, as a VP at there, right? Um, overseeing some programming. You don't. I mean, how do you just you know? I mean, talk to me a little bit about your path because you, you must have had certain kind of a certain mindset or a certain discipline to want to always kind of look for you know 
shift your own path in a way where you wanted to go eventually, right? You, you tried the documentary thing, it dried out, it didn't quite work out. Well, I want to do film and television anyways, right? So let's go to LA. You started at like a lower level and then somehow you ended up at, at Paramount. But like how, how, did, how were you able to, to do that? There's so many people out there in Los Angeles right now, right? Hustling, trying to make it happen every day. Uh, it, was just, it, was, it was just sheer determination. When I moved to L.A., um, I, I remember I got some advice from someone I'd worked for on television stations, and, and, and he had said to me, when you're looking for a job, come up with a plan. I was like, come up with a plan? What does that mean? You know, I want a job, I'm going to look for a job, you know. But then the more I thought about it, I said, okay, here's my plan. Uh, Daily Variety and a Hollywood Reporter on Tuesdays, I believe, maybe one was Tuesday and the other was Thursday, would list all the shows in production in Los Angeles. And it would usually list an address, a phone number, and sometimes some key personnel. So I would either send them a res- I'd send them a resume and follow up with a phone call. And then uh, if they didn't have anything, I'd say, well, do you know anybody that's looking? Can you give me another name, a, a, you know, a phone number? Some of them would. Some of them tried to get rid of me. Uh, I thought it was ironic because one of those guys that was kind of rude for me, uh, rude to me, uh, later, later came to work at Paramount, and I was his boss, and I thought that was kind of... Uh, um, Don't you love uh, when when that happens? A little bit of my work there. Um, so, anyways, I kept I kept doing that, and eventually somebody said, "Well, call this guy at Paramount because they're looking for a guy to you know oversee some of these network shows." And I was like, "Oh boy, I don't know if I can do that, but let me try." And the interview went very well, and they hired me. And um, uh, I think my first title was manager of current programs, and then you know a short time after that, they promoted me to vice president. And I overs- you know, I was overseeing a lot of uh, uh, shows that we were doing in the division. Uh, now I have to say that you know Paramount went through a lot of changes. It got bought by Viacom. They dissolved the TV division that I was a part of and put all that into CBS Productions. And now Paramount is back again. I think they have a, a television division there now. Um, but it's it's you know it's it, it's it, it might as well be a different company. So at that know, time, what did your day to day work look like you know um what were you w- w- mostly responsible for at the height of your career at paramount um you know the job was to manage you know make sure the shows were on budget and manage that and work with the producers of the show to say that they were on budget it was also to look at what was uh you know the creative direction of the show and 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 actually the biggest part of the job was dealing with the network and making sure that you know the shows that that, that, you know, for example, one of the shows that I, that, that, you know, that I was overseeing was the first uh, version of MacGyver. And ABC at the time, you know, they were kind of lukewarm about the show. So my job was to make sure that they, you know, weren't lukewarm, that they were excited about the show. So, you know, the ratings would come out on a Tuesday morning after the show ended on a Monday night. And usually I was talking to the network guys uh, by Tuesday afternoon and saying, Hey, we went up a little bit or wasn't that a good episode last night or, you know, blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And, and, you know, it it was essentially a sales job and, uh, um, you know, occasionally, you know, Star Trek next generation was another show that I was, you know, I was, I was, uh, overseeing and it's kind of a, you know, I see that word now relating to executives in in the trade papers and I'll say so-and-so was overseeing this show or, they oversee this show, they oversee that show. You know, you're, it, it makes it sound like, you know, you're the last word on it. 
Actually, what it is, is you're trying to work with the showrunner and give them as much freedom as possible to make the show according to their vision, but yet being aware of what, uh, uh, you know, the network is looking for, and you want to guide them toward that. Because sometimes they want to take on the network, and they go, ah, I don't want to do what the network says. Well, be careful, because you're biting the hand with feet. You know, if, if the network doesn't want the show, um, you know, uh, then you're out of luck. You can be as independent-minded as you want to be, but if they say, hey, we're going to cancel you, well, you're going to be independent, you know, by yourself at home. So, so is it, was yeah. it basically a production company that, you know, was working on these, or were you partnering with third-party production companies as well? No, it was us. Paramount was producing the show, um, uh, financed it and all that stuff, you know, licensed fee from the network, you know, partially paid for it, and then, you, you know, it was, it, we did back then what was called deficit financing because the license fee didn't match what you spent on the show. But the idea was if you could get to 100 episodes, then you could syndicate the show. Of course, that was back before, you know, cable it was back before um, uh, streaming services like Netflix. Okay, so you did that. And then I want to, so for me, like, how do you then from there go to something like 24, you know, um, which obviously is a hit show or was a hit show on Fox. Uh, you, you, you produced, I think you're credited on IMDb to have produced 49 episodes. I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, that's a lot. I think that's a lot of episodes, right? Uh, tell me about that experience. That must have been really cool too. Well, I got to 24 after you know, I produced some other shows, you know, so I had a track record out there. Um, uh, and some of the people, and the way I got brought into 24 was uh, one of the producer-directors on the show had worked with me before, uh, a guy by the name of John Kassar, who, you know, when they were looking for someone to produce the show, uh, they were replacing somebody. He mentioned me to his boss. At least that's how I remember. It's been a while now. And uh, I went in, I met with those guys, and they said, okay, come on uh, you know, onto the show. So that's how I got to 24. Um, but I think I also earned my keep because we did a lot of things on that show that um, uh, uh, that I, you know, had a big part contributing to. There's a, there's a sequence, there are many sequences that I directed the second unit or, you know, um, uh, uh, helped to rewrite the sequences so that um, uh, uh, they were producible and, or believable, or whatever the case may be. We had we had a sequence in year three. I think it's episode twenty-two. I, I don't know the title of it because all the titles are always three o'clock or four o'clock or something like that. I don't know the title. But in that sequence, we, you know, the script was originally written where uh, CTU had a prisoner that the terrorists wanted, and terrorists had a prisoner that CTU wanted, and we arranged the meeting place. It was supposed to take place in the desert where. We, uh, CTU releases their prisoner, the terrorists release theirs, they do the walk across the thing, and what ends up happening is the person going to the terrorists didn't want to go there, ran back, and this big shootout occurs, and the terrorist of the year, the guy we're trying to capture, runs in this helicopter, tries to fly away, and Jack takes his 9mm block and bang, 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 shoots on a helicopter. But we all kind of looked at one another and said, no one's going to believe that, you know. In fact, our helicopter pilot said to us, if you could take down a helicopter with a handgun, there would have been a lot more deaths in Vietnam because his brother was a, a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. So and, hold on real uh, quick. So this is so this I is came a, up with another way of doing that. This is the script phase, right? You're you're 
literally reading the script at this time, and in, and this is how it's written in there. Episode, we've read the script. You know, a bunch of the writers and some of the directors and everybody involved, we all kind of like, well, well, this this doesn't really work. And we discussed a lot of different ideas. And and I, you know, since I was new to the show, I kind of waited for all the other ideas to get out there before I suggested my idea because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to upstage anybody or anything like that. And uh, I suggested uh, a sequence that I, I said, let's move it to downtown Los Angeles. We'll do it underneath the 6th Street Bridge. We'll still do the exchange. When the exchange goes bad, the gunfight will start there. I said, I'll have SWAT guys repel from the 6th Street Bridge, because there's a road right next to it, and uh, they'll come into the fight. And then our terrorist of the year will jump into the uh, tunnel that goes down into the L.A. River, because there's a tunnel right there where they can drive trucks down in there to you know take debris out of the basin. Because the LA River is all concrete there, it's a flood control channel, and uh, so, anyways, the bad guy runs down there, and uh, Jack Bauer takes off after him. And I had I had Kiefer run down, and as our terrorist runs out into the LA River, Jack gets to the mouth of the tunnel. He's about to shoot at him when it, the helicopter comes to pick up the terrorist. It also has a fifty caliber machine gun on it. That pins down Jack, so Jack has to. You know, take cover. The guy's running. The helicopter lands. I have Jack call in to CBTU, and they order two Marine Corps F-18s to come down the L.A. River and put a missile into the helicopter. And uh, I got the United States Marines to give us two F-18s. They flew over the river at 250 feet. Uh, through visual effects, we put a missile into the helicopter and blew it up. We actually blew up the helicopter. The visual effect was the missile and the rotors turning on the helicopter, so, and then, you know, it all blew apart, and, uh, uh, and then that's how Jack catches that. Okay, uh, so, wait, let's, let's break this down a little bit. I mean, so you took a, a scene out of a desert that seemed to be, you know, the environment would at least seem to be a little bit, you know, more conducive to shooting a sequence like that. It didn't make any sense, I agreed, shooting down a helicopter with a handgun, right? But then you decide to take the whole action into like the city of Los Angeles by the L.A. River, and then with the helicopter and the, the, the jets flying through and missiles flying and, and you know, stuff exploding. So uh, walk me through this. Like, what, do you, what is your role in this? Is your role to find out, okay, is this doable, A, with the budget that we have? Is it doable, B, does it make sense for the script, the way it's written? And and then uh, see, I guess, do you then yourself put your hands on it and say, you know what, let let me call the military and 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 get in touch with the right people over there to do what I need to do. It started with, um, you know, suggesting the idea to the showrunner, uh, Joel Sernow, and to the other writers there, and they all went great. You know, originally we were going to have the Navy do it. And the Navy pilots got into some trouble for flying over some ballpark on the East Coast the day before they were supposed to do it after the national anthem, and no one expected them to do it. But apparently, as, as I remember the story, the squadron commander, they were up flying around, and they said, hey, let's just fly over this ballpark, make sure you know we could do all this. Well, nobody knew they were going to do it you know, the day ahead of time, and everybody panicked and called 911. And so then the Navy <laughs> called me back, and they went, uh, sorry, we can't do it. They but called 911 in real life, though. 
Yeah, they, they really, yeah, people were scared because it was shortly after 9-11. Oh, I was, see. Uh, yeah. 2004, I think. And um, mm-hmm. so the Navy said, well, we can't do it, but try the Marines. So you, I had to call the Marines. I had to send the script to the Department of Defense in Washington. Uh, they approved it. I had to talk to the FAA because uh, where we were planning on shooting this is under the approach to Los Angeles International Airport. Everybody coming into LAX is at about, at that point, is somewhere around three to 5,000 feet. And so what the FAA's concern was was that passengers on these flights would look out the window, see combat jets, and think, oh, my gosh, they're going to escort us in because there's a terrorist on the flight. So they assigned an air traffic controller to us. And the way we were able to make it work, we did it the day of a Dodger game. And at that time, and I still think it's in effect now, at that time, when you have an event at like Dodger Stadium or Staples Center or Yankee Stadium or or any major venue like that, the uh, airspace around that within a three-mile radius is closed to general aviation. And the only uh, aircraft allowed in there are like United Airlines or somebody like that who's under control of the tower and air traffic control in Los Angeles. So we were doing it on a Sunday, and, and this and this moratorium, so to speak, on the airspace is like three hours before the event and two hours after the event. So if there's a ball game at 1 o'clock, starting at 10 o'clock in the morning, you can't fly your little single-engine aircraft in there. So now the Marines and the FAA were satisfied that they were going to have clean airspace and wouldn't have to deal with some guy in a you know single-engine plane that might get away and, you know, cause a, you know, a crash or a collision or something like that. So they signed off on it. And, and, um, uh, but the FAA still wanted the controller because they didn't want panic on the, on the flights coming in LAX. So, okay. That's a lot of coordination, it sounds like, right? And it's, it's, it's like moving mountains almost. Um, and you successfully, I guess, helped pull this off. How, how, what do you think was the most important driver for you to, you know, from A to finish, like to get this done, you know, what, what does it take, I guess, my, is my question to, to be that type of a producer and, and achieve those type of setups? Well, uh, my, you know, when, when you're producing a television show, I think, you know, if, if, if you have story, storytelling skills, you know, uh, you, you, you need to know, you need to understand the budget finances of this. But, you know, if, if that's your only skill, then you're going to say no to it because it costs too much. So, you know, by actually bringing that sequence into downtown L.A., it was cheaper for us. And I did it on a Sunday morning. And, uh, um, uh, you know, we didn't spend that much money at all on it. It was, you know, I don't remember the exact number, but it wasn't very much. It was, you know, some six-day rates for, you know, a camera crew for like eight hours. And but what we were getting out of it because we had second unit money budgeted and it fit within our second unit, but but what the payoff was was huge. So the know? military did it because they just I mean they didn't charge anything for it. Um, kind of. I, I don't want to say too much about that. Uh, they did it. The, the Marines did it because I mean it, it's like the support they gave to Top Gun back in the eighties and like they gave to. Uh, the sequel that will eventually come out when the pandemic is over. Uh, if you portray them in a positive light, they're probably going to cooperate and give you stuff, you know. And uh, what the what the commanding officer of that air group who flew the lead plane on that day told me later was that he said, 
this is a big deal for us because we were able to learn, you know, what it's like to fly low-level flights over a major urban area because they're not allowed to practice that stuff, you know. But we, because we did, and you know, part of our preparation for that was to let all the emergency services in LA know, plus all the people that lived around there, that this was a movie, this was not an attack, and you should not call nine one one. So we did all that work, and so. Uh, nobody called 911. There was no panic on the ground or anything like that. So, you know, and that was because of the great people I had worked with. Me. Um, so there were, you know, I mean, there were a million things we had to coordinate. And that was just part of it. And, uh, but they do it because, you know, at the end of the sequence, you know, when the helicopter blows up, Jack gets on the radio and says, tell the Marines thanks, you know. And so what you have is, is you know, millions of people are watching something where the United States Marine Corps demonstrates their skills and to perfection and you know it puts the marines in a good light it's good for recruiting it's just you know everybody wins in a situation like that no that that makes that makes sense and so what do you think makes a good producer in general well i think you have to know um uh you have to know understand budgeting and what things cost and you have to know how to tell a story because it's, it's real easy to say, oh, no, that's too expensive. We can't do that. You know, sometimes you have to find another way to do it, you know, and still tell the story. Um, and uh, that was the case, you know, going out to the desert for us was going to be a big deal. And in the case of these jets, going to downtown L.A. was not going to be a big deal. It was, you know, I didn't have to put people in hotels or, you know, have travel time and all that nonsense. Uh, so I saved a lot of money doing that. And I took that money. And I put that into the cameras we needed. We had five cameras that day, one of them in the helicopter, which I had looking down because it was real important for me to get a shot where you could see the jets over Los Angeles. If I just shoot them up against blue sky, well, they could be anywhere. It could be stock footage. So you could see in that sequence, you could see the railroad yard, you could see the L.A. River, you could see all that stuff that's down below. How did you shoot, yeah. how did you shoot uh, down on the jets? What, what vehicle did you use? Another helicopter? I had a helicopter. I had a helicopter up there. We had, you know, uh, uh, back then uh, we used this thing called the Tyler mount, which is a, a like a Steadicam mount adapted to a helicopter, and had a camera operator up there. Uh, and you know, he was the one getting that shot for me. That's pretty cool. Um, who do you like as a producer of work with? Like, who's your closest, you know, ally? I guess. And in, 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 when you in, is it the showrunner? Is it the director? Is it the DP? Who do you see yourself working with a lot? Well, it's usually the showrunner, uh, and it's the, the director of the episode, um, uh, because you have to balance, you know, usually the scripts are too big for the budget, and so you have to go through and figure out, okay, what do we really need, or, you know, how can I move this scene from this location to another place and still make it work? You know, maybe I find something across the street from the place we're already in, that doesn't cost as much. What, excuse me. What was originally written, and then you got to work with the, you know, you got to get the director to support that, and and you got to get the showrunner to sign off on it. Sometimes the director doesn't support that, the showrunner does, and you just tell the director, well, that's what you have to do, um, because that's episodic television. You know, it's in, in a feature film, you wouldn't be doing that. You'd have to, you, you know, I don't know a whole lot about features, you know, other than. Um, I know that you know the director has a lot more control than he does he or she does in an episode of television. Interesting. Uh, yeah, those are the people I work with. The DP is part of it. The 
the whole crew is the production designer. I work with the production designer very closely in episodic television because, you know, uh, set construction is one of your biggest expenses. Uh, your location people are very important because if you're shooting in a place like New York City, it's expensive. And your location manager is key in helping you find places that uh, tell the story of New York, and like in the case of Jessica Jones, and... Um, uh, and finding the right locations that um, uh, will, will fit the story. I mean, it sounds like it's definitely a balancing act between, you know, finding the right budget, people skills, soft skills, you know, talking to the right people, aligning creatively with with the key f- folks, and then, ex- exec- you know, exec- uh, executing on it at the end of it, right, to just kind of bring it all to life. Yeah, you, you know, you need, you know, multiple skills, and I think you know, one I haven't mentioned that's also very important is leadership. You know, if you're a strong leader, a good leader, uh, and your crew trusts you, and a director trusts you as someone who's trying to make a good show, and a showrunner trusts you, um, uh, then you'll get a lot more done. You'll be able to, to reach the goals of producing something that's, you know, special and people want to watch, while also being within the financial guidelines that the studio wants you to be in. So, uh, and if the crew trusts you and believes in you, then they'll make it, you know, make every effort to make it work too. And it's important to have them be on board because they're the ones that can say, you know what, I know a way I can, you know, kind of cut a corner here and, you know, we can save some money there. Or they'll come to me and say, hey, Tim, mm-hmm. you know, if you lose this scene over here, I'll save $30,000 that you can put toward this, you know. And um, uh, I, I think, you know, I, I think that's one thing that's, you know, very important. I mean, you know, uh, Jessica Jones, um, you know, it was important for me to have a great relationship with Kristen Ritter, you know, and she learned to trust me as we got to know each other. She learned that, you know, I was there to, you know, make sure, you know, I, I often insisted that they take her out of scene so that she had a Friday or a Monday off because she was in so much that she needed to rest. And and I was like, guys, you, you know, you're going you're gonna to kill this woman. I said, it's just not right. And, you know, we wanted to be at her best. And, you know, so I would control the hours so that she was going home at 11 or midnight on Friday and not 4 or 5 in the morning on Saturday. Sometimes we had to do that. Sometimes we do all that stuff. But I tried to keep that at a minimum so that that she could, you know, get rest, prepare properly, and also have a life. Yeah. Uh, so you have to, you know... You, you, all you're doing is juggling a bunch of balls. It's a lot like of that. juggling, yeah, for sure. It's a lot of different balls up in the in in the air at all times, and your phone must be ringing off the hook all the time with different people trying to get different things from you. Probably well, yeah, it's it, it's usually texting and emails, which you know I, you know, that I've, that I've been tempted several times to take my cell phone and throw it out the window of <laughs> the scout van and just say, "Too bad, you have to come to my office." <laughs> uh, I, I used to. What I usually tell the crew is, I said. Here are the best ways to get a hold of you. Number one, come and see me. We can sit and talk and get to know each other. If you can't come and see me, number two, you can call me on the phone and we can talk and get to know each other and understand this. I said number 4,000 is an email. Number 4,001 is a text. You know, because you get so many of them. It's like, oh, Where does the podcast fall in all of that? (laughs) Well, this is is completely different, but... um, 
So, but, but talking face to face is always better. It just I is. Yeah, I think there's something to that for sure. And and so right now, I think uh, Out of Banks is something that's hap- It's going on on Netflix right now. It's it's I hear a lot about it. I haven't quite honestly checked it out, but it's a teenage drama. Um, you know th- that is currently on Netflix. Tell me about that one. I mean, uh, it it seems like it's it's pretty successful uh, and popular right now. Well, I got picked up for another year, so yeah, it's you know Netflix doesn't release um, audience numbers, so I you know I couldn't tell you you know if it's a you know a zillion people are watching it or you know why is that why don't they why don't they do that I don't know probably because uh, I you know I don't know I just be guessing you know uh, it probably is a way to you know if they like a show and there's not enough viewers there. And if they were to announce the number, well, somebody who's working on a show that has more viewers but maybe is not seen as favorably with Netflix, uh, you know, that that other guy could say, "Hey, wait a minute, I got more people. Why are you giving them a renewal?" You know, I could, I, that, I, that's pure speculation. Right, right, right. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, but they just don't. I mean, there are there are um, other services that somehow seem to project that. Although I don't, I haven't seen anything for Outer Banks. Or many of the other shows, for that matter. Um, you know, I, I, it's good and bad. I mean, you know, if they're if they're if they're ordering shows based on what they think is good, well, that's great. You know, I mean, because too often when I was in the world of network television, I thought there were good shows that that uh, got canceled too soon because they, you know, they didn't like the ratings. And television, you know, the history of network television anyway is there are so many shows that that premiered. Poorly and didn't do well for the first few years, but the network stuck to it because they either didn't have anything or they believed in it. And then eventually, those shows became top ten shows, if not number one shows. So there's a there's a long, long history of that kind of thing happening. So, um, but now that we're in the streaming universe, you know, you, I mean, the numbers are, you know, not always available to you, so you don't know. But I think streaming does avoid uh, does present the opportunity for for um, for those streaming companies to stick with the show longer uh, and and give it a chance to breathe. Whereas you know, in, I mean, I did some shows for network television. You get three, four episodes. and go, oh, that's it. It's over. You know, like, oh, right. okay, right. Thanks for that. <laughs> where where was Outer Banks shot? South, South Carolina. South. Oh wow. Okay. South Carolina. When was it shot? I mean, before before COVID. Yeah, we shot. Um, when did we start shooting? Uh, we finished around Labor Day, and then we did some shooting in September of 2019. We started April, May, somewhere into there right. of 2009. I don't remember the exact date, but it was somewhere into there. Right, right, okay. And you got it all in the can. And then, so you, what, what's the status now with some of the? I mean, for you with with the pandemic i mean are you on pause with some of the production i know that the, you know some production has picked up but it's still you know a little bit of a gray area going on there well there's very little that's going on right now um uh i was just talking to my agent the other day there's just not much going and um uh, uh you know the friend of mine works on uh, better call saul and they're supposed to start august 10th i think and she got a call couple weeks prior to that saying I will push it to January of 21 um, so you know uh, 
And in the streaming world, sometimes you do the first year of a series, but you can't come back for the second year because, you know, it's 10 episodes and you need another job and then you get to another job and then that show gets picked up. And so, you know, you end up being more of a gypsy than you like. Um, and, um, uh, so I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with, uh, Outer Banks. I imagine they'll go back after the first of the year. Um, from what I understand, the studios and the unions are still negotiating, you know, what the protocols are going to be. How many people are going to have to be tested? How many people are going to be quarantined? You know, how, how do we, you know, how do we do it? You yeah. Know? Yeah. It's a tough, it's a tough one for all of us, right? It's very tough, and it's going to, you know, I the, the the unions came up with a plan that they submitted to the studio, and, you know, there's there's expense involved, and the question is going to be, is it, you know, and it's not cheap, what, what, what plan has been, you know, submitted, and, you know, the studios right. are going to have to decide, you know, okay, do we accept this, and the unions are going to have to decide, okay, you know, the changes that the studios want to make, are, are we okay with that, or are they going to dig in their head? Anybody's guess right now. Okay. Well, well. In the meanwhile, um, you know, th- thank you for you know coming on this podcast and and talking to me a little bit about what you do. Um, it's definitely interesting. Um, and uh, uh, you know, one last question before before I let you go. Actually, I want I wanted to know, um, you know, do you ever have any passion projects of that you? Kind of, you know, yes, you get these opportunities to work on these, you know, big TV, scripted TV series, you know, and, and that's great and, and that's your bread and butter and, and, and all that. But as someone, you know, in your position, I'm sure you have your own ideas too, right? I mean, is there anything like that you ever pursued? Well, uh, two things. Uh, I don't have a specific idea about this, but I've always wanted to do a Western. I love Westerns, you know. I mean, they're, they're just, it's just, it's just great. You know, one of my favorite films is Unforgiven. Uh, there's a great movie now that's out there. Uh, it was made in 1980 with Steve McQueen called Tom Horn, another great Western. Um, uh, you know, I just the other night I was like, I want to watch Hang 'em High again. I mean, Clint Eastwood was another great, you know, that old squinty eyed thing that he had going on. And uh, uh, I, I just, you know, uh, there was another one that Costner did with Robert McQueen. Robert Duvall, Open Range, you know, it's good. I just love High Noon, you know, love that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I wish sure. I could do a Western. And then the other thing I wish I could do is um, I'm kind of working on something, uh, you know, with my work with the Navy and the Marine Corps, um, I subsequently was invited to Camp Pendleton. I made a lot of friends with the, one of my closest friends now is a general in the Marine Corps. And uh, I was uh, invited to. Uh, uh, spend the night on the USS Carl Vincent, one of our aircraft carriers. We went down to San Diego and they flew us 90 miles out to sea. We trapped on the deck and we stayed overnight on the, on the, on the Carl Vincent. And the one thing I learned, uh, I went to sniper school at Camp Pendleton and all this. I mean, it was just, and, and sniper school was pretty amazing because these guys start on one end of a field and they have to put brush and leaves and all this stuff on them. And, and make their way through the field, and there's some guy looking for him. And if he sees him, you know, it says, oh, you know, and he tells the guy, go over there, and, you know, if he's spotted, well, you know, she's failed, and he's got to start over. Mm. Well, they took us through the field where these guys were, and I almost stepped on two Marines. Oh, That's how good these guys are at hiding themselves. I was like, whoa, <laughs> I almost stepped on two guys. And at any rate, my point is, when I was on the Carl Vincent, when I was down at Camp Pendleton, 
our armed forces, our, 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 the men and women serving, at least in those two branches, and I'm sure in the Air Force and the Army, it's the same way too, are so dedicated and so good at what they do. Uh, I think it's a story that America needs to, to uh, uh, see be told because these people are incredible. And we're talking about people that are 19, 20, 21, 22, 22 years old. I had a colonel tell me, an infantry commander, who said, you know, who said to me, my number one job is to make sure that that 18-year-old rifleman gets back home alive. And I was like, wow. You know, yeah. These are the kind of people that are serving our country. Yeah. And uh, uh, and you see the skill. I mean, I, there's a million stories when I was on the Vincent uh, about what those uh, sailors and Marines do on that aircraft carrier. 5,000 people, you know, at sea. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible, you know, to see them watch the... Uh, uh, the job they do. I'll never forget, I, we were on the bridge of the Vincent, and at the helm, steering this big aircraft carrier, uh, was a young black woman from Detroit, Michigan. You know, and the commanding officer of the bridge said to me, he said, you see all these kids here? He said, if something happened to me, I have complete confidence in them that they could take care of this ship and get us out of trouble. And I was, I was like, Wow. Uh, so it's a great story, and that's something I'd love to tell. So that's and, uh, another kind of movie that you 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 would love to pursue and and, and make, huh? That like a military. I like to see it as a television series. Oh, I think series. there's enough stories to do it as a television series. I yeah. think you can go week to week, and and uh, I mean, especially after our experience in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, I've read a lot of stories that are just incredible. And it's not just you know you know, Audie Murphy type stuff where they shot up the enemy and won the battle. I mean, it's other stuff about how they, you know, took, how they take care of one another um, and uh, how close these men and women become, uh, um, you know, on the field of battle and the job that they do. Uh, it's uh, my friend who, uh, yeah, he's a general now, but at one point he was a squadron commander of uh, uh, Cobra attack helicopters in uh, Afghanistan. And he told me some stories out of there that I was just like astounded mm-hmm. at just how dedicated our people are and how we how we play by the rules too. You know, he told me one day about how they were trying to support a, a company of Marines on the ground that was under heavy fire from the Taliban, and they were flying in to, to fill this one building with missiles where these guys were. And he was about to order uh, the other three helicopters with him to fire when a woman ran out of the building carrying a baby. And he was screaming into his headset, abort, 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 because they didn't know if there were more women and children in there, and they didn't want to kill them. You know, uh, they were just interested in dealing with the enemy. And, and he told me the thing that he was most proud of at the end of his six-month deployment, manning that uh, squadron, he got a letter from the International Red Cross saying that his squadron, it was verified, had never killed an innocent on the battlefield, which is pretty amazing, yeah. you know. Uh, and it's something that our our men and women in the armed services care about. So it's not just to go out there and take out the other guys, you know. And I think that's a story that needs to be told. And and I, you know, I don't know what I would do sitting in a helicopter, knowing that there are you know men and women on the ground that are under fire and could be killed, and I have to pull back and not fire. You know, that's. Uh, that takes. Yeah, there's uh, some that tough decisions that here. they have to make, it's and really sometimes special. they have to make it at a very young age too. You know, and uh, and 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 
and and you're in what you're talking about. I mean, there's definitely some of these hero stories that we just don't really hear about all the time. But that's that's who the military is, also, right? So they deserve to be told. All right, Tim, awesome man. Thank you so much for being on Full Focus. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Good luck. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.